Hello, my tribe. I'm back from the Seattle uh, winter retreat, and I was the um, one of the guest speakers, and I led two workshops. And the first workshop that I led, or session that I led, was on step one. And so that's um, what I'm posting today. And I think the only thing I want to say about that is that the sound quality is not that great. Uh, I'm still working on that, um, getting better sound quality, but it's good enough. All right. Love you. Bye. Let's just take a breath. And before I get started, I always like to pray that I be of service to this particular fellowship in terms of my speaking. That I, I have a lot of information and a lot of ideas in my head, a lot of things that I want to say, but what's really most important is that I respond to the needs of this particular fellowship. And so I pray to surrender my will um, to that of a higher power's will, which I believe is, is recovery in, in, the, in the fellowship. So I'd like to do that. Then also what I'd like to do is, for those who know it, I'd like to start with the third step prayer. If you don't know it, just listen, and then at the end just say, Amen, or, yeah, that sounds great. You know? <laughs> okay, ready? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. So I just want to say for the newcomer that I'm um, an atheist in a strict sense, um, but I'm a spiritualist, um, and I believe in the divine. I believe in something beautiful and mysterious. And every morning I do the third step prayer as written. And I roll out of bed onto my knees. And what I'm saying is, is that I am a member of the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous and all my other 12-step programs. And today I choose to live in recovery. So it's a ritual for me. For me, the third step prayer is the prayer that Dr. Bob and Bill W. did. And so in a sense, I don't argue with the words I don't argue with its um, religious history. I only think of Dr. Bob and Bill W. and the old timers and the first 100 and that this is the prayer of my ancestors. And I leave the rest go. Um, And so that's what I do every morning. So I'm glad we got to start with that. Now, you'll notice that on your chair was a little paper and envelope. And if you didn't get that, can you please raise your hand? Okay, are there any extra sets around people? Okay. Does anyone have any extra? Okay, who did not raise? Because this is going to be our first one. So, okay, we've got some extra. Can people help pass? Yeah, so can we take care of this admin piece first? I only brought 40 sets of paper. So if there are more than 40 people here, we've got a couple things. If you're not a writer and you know that you're not going to use two pieces of paper, 
you know, that you're only going to use one front and back, you can sacrifice a piece of paper. Also, um, Diana found some cards. So, but everyone needs to have some, what I call, pretty paper. Something really special. Is everyone set? Okay, I'm going to assume that people are set. You've got... I'm going to tell you what it is, and then the writing is going to take five minutes, okay? So this was my... I'm not going to go into my story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go into step one. Actually, I'm going to go into step zero, and then step one, and through the course of talking about that, I will then tell you my story through my experience of doing step zero and step one. So just to get some metrics... Um, out of the way. Uh, my first program was in 1993. I was 23 years old, and that was ACOA. So that's how I came in. OA, I didn't come into until 1998, and it was my fourth program. Um, and so I have uh, 21 years in OA. Uh, I have five years of abstinence. I've gone through two major relapses, and, um, and then in there were years of chronic slipping. So I'm going to be talking about that um, that's why I know so much about step one. <laughs> <You know? coughs> also, just a little housekeeping is, is that I'm going to be leading the um, afternoon. It's not going to be a meeting. It's going to be another workshop, and it's going to be on shame. <coughs> and so I'm going to incorporate the OA principles in that because those two are related. So um, if you look at your schedule, I think it's three or something. Anyway, look at your schedule. That meeting is going to happen in here. Is that correct? Yeah, and then that topic will be on shame, and I will weave in the OA principles. It's not going to be hard to do. So, okay, are we pretty much ready to write? So let me tell you um, the story of what we're doing and so that you understand the intention behind this assignment. So, um, so that's why I can't say my, you know, this is my first assignment. But when I hit a new level of willingness, I'd already done a bunch of step work, and um, I found a sponsor in um, Al-Anon, and she gave me this one assignment, and it was beautiful and wonderful. And since then, I have added it to all of my other program um, assignments. And the experience that I had was is that I, I did this assignment. And then I did all of my steps. And then just for experiment, I did the assignment again. And I was amazed at how differently I answered the question. So what you're going to do is you're going to do some writing. And then you're going to put it in your little envelope. And you've got your little sticker, you know what I mean, to close up the envelope. Now you can decide. You can decide like that you're going to open it a year from now, maybe at the next retreat. You know, you're going to come here and you're going to open it, and you're just going to really... My hope is is that if you continue to engage in the process of recovery, which is my form of a higher power, you will be amazed at how far you've come and how you will answer this question differently. Okay, so step zero. Why is it important to take care of me first? Okay, so I'm going to keep, you know, if you need to keep writing, that's fine. Also, if you didn't use all the paper, if you could, you know, at the end, just uh, bring it back for the next group, that'd be great. 
Um, so that was my first assignment. In the very beginning, um, what I wrote, since now that you wrote, what I wrote was basically like, well, no one else is going to fucking take care of me. So, you know, I mean, I just was like, that was kind of my attitude. Like, I just had to do it. And then um, I actually did this three times. And then the second time I wrote, I was like, well, I have to put the Mexican oxygen mask over my own face before I can be of service to others. Um, I have to say I did the assignment again. I'm not going to give away the ending, but I have a completely different reason around why it's important to take care of me first, which, uh, which I can sum up actually as because I deserve to be cared for and I'm worthy of care, you know. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so save those, seal them, Put them away. You can decide when you want to open it again. Um, what I would recommend is to do the assignment again and then read your assignment. Don't read your assignment and then do it again. Like um, it's a really good marker for you know like how much you've internally changed. Um, and that's going to be kind of a theme is that it's really hard to. Part of the reason that we don't market OA is like, how can you market internal transformation, right? Um, even if, I mean, some people come in here and maybe they, you know, look like they're 10 pounds overweight or maybe they look, they're bulimics or whatever and they don't look like, I mean, how are you going to advertise to the outside culture like, I am a completely different person? You know, and then also I don't know if anyone watched Brit uh, saw Brittany runs a marathon, but I was really struck by she lost the weight, but she was the same snarky person, and that and that that was something that she hadn't dealt with yet, which is exactly what we deal with here. Um, so anyway, so step zero is if you want if we read the. Um, how it works a lot and you know in the very first thing it says if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it so that's two then you are ready to take certain steps now sometimes we start doing the steps and we go through it this was my story go through it on a cursory level I'm not quite getting everything that everyone's hooplawing about. And so then I become, I want more of what you have. I become more willing. Um, and then I become more ready. So sometimes people come in and it's just like that white light experience is a very dramatic. That was not my experience. My experience was the educational variety. So um, another... Uh, you know, step zero. Um, for some of us, including myself, we may be a little sick of this poem, but it is a classic recovery poem, and hopefully I brought enough for everyone. And I'm going to read it while hopefully you guys pass these out. And this is another one around starting the journey of recovery. And it's actually called The Journey by Mary Oliver. So... I'm going to read it. So again, there you are. You know, I know we all have time, but think about that. Like, think about the newcomer coming in the room. Think about coming into the rooms. You've been here for a while, but you haven't gotten a sponsor, and you haven't done the steps. Okay? I, 
I have no judgment towards you. That was my story too. Well, here's an analogy for that, right? I go to the doctor. I say, I think something's wrong. I've been trying to pretend like nothing's wrong, but I know something's wrong. I go to the doctor. I'm like, you know, I think something's wrong. And the doctor, you know, does some tests and tells me the truth. And the truth is, is that I have cancer. She's like, we got it early, you know, meaning like you're not dead, you know. So we got it early. And I know some people have had cancer, and, and I have my best friend went through cancer, and I lost my foster parents to cancer. It's a very sensitive subject for me, but I think it's also a very good analogy. So forgive, like, if it doesn't quite translate. I think it, in some respects it does to the point that I'm getting to, which is that so I'm in the doctors. They're like, okay, we have a treatment plan for you. Great. And we have a support system for you. Great. So here's, you're going to need radiation. Here's your radiation doctor. You know, um, here's a uh, facility that you can go to, and everyone's going to be incredibly nice to you. You know, and then, um, and here's a support group that happens several times a day that you can go to, um, or depending on where you live, once a week or whatever. But, um, or you can call into other support groups. Great. So I, I, I go um, to the facility. I check it out. Everyone's so nice to me. I'm like, what the fuck do you want from me? You know what I mean? Um, I'm just sharing, like, my story. You know, I'm from the Bay Area, and, you know, and now I live up here, and I love being, you know, nice and not swearing, but it's, you know, <laughs> um, you know, but whatever. Uh, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, so, you know, all parts of me are welcome here. Um, but uh, so I'm like, great. I love that everyone is so nice to me. I'm like, God, I, this is what the world should be like is where people are just trying to be kind all the time. You know, I, I personally see like the 12 steps with the God thing. And I'm just like, yeah, not doing that. Um, and then but I love sitting around talking to people. I love hearing other people. I'm like blown away. Um, and they're like, OK, well, well, did you make an appointment with your chemo specialist? You know, everyone's I'm like, no, you know, I will, you know, and I don't. So coming into OA and coming into the rooms and going to the meetings is like having cancer and not getting radiation. That's what a sponsor in the steps are for, is to get that cancer out of your body. And here's my experience. I've heard that chemo makes you sick and it's hard and it's treacherous and it's like you know I, there's a movie with you know an amazing Emma Thompson I thought I was going to forget her name Emma Thompson called Wit and she it's her story around cancer and everything and at one point she looks at the camera and she's like getting chemo and she's nauseous and whatever and you're like oh my god it's terrifying and then she looks at the camera and she said by the way this is the cure you know this is the cure and I, I tell my sponsees, let me tell you something. I'm a no-bullshitter kind of person. I live in step one, the principle of honesty. Here's what's true. It is pain for pain. But you are in the pain of the disease. And that pain only gets worse. And that pain will rob you of everything, every dream that you have and everything you want to do with your life. That's what the disease will do. Recovery uh, is the pain of growth, and it is the pain of healing. 
And if you commit, just like a cancer patient, if you commit to the nine months or the year of whatever of doing the chemo, and we have such an intense support system for you, and we have people who, have un- who understand, like, oh, yeah, I've had to go through that too, you know, and you will then, your heart will need to be opened up so that we can get all of that shrapnel that's in there out. And you will be surrounded by people who have done that too, you know. And, and I can attest to this, and this is why it's important that old timers come to the meeting, is that you will live a life beyond your wildest dreams. Now, the second part to that, which I'll be talking about this afternoon, is if you allow yourself to live a life beyond your wildest dreams, and that's where the shame comes in. But I'll talk about that this afternoon, is how we can get in the way of our own recovery. So another example of that would be, say, like lung cancer, quit smoking, goes get chemo, gets the chemo out, goes back, starts smoking, you know, and just starts and keeping that process going and how that keeps us stuck in the disease because we're terrified of the gifts of recovery because we have a deep sense of that we don't deserve them in some way. Now, I'm also speaking to different levels. I'm what they call a heavy hitter. I have a lot of trauma history, um, and so I work with a lot of heavy hitters. Um, So I'm not speaking to everyone. The other analogy that I use is that, like, you know, recovery is like art school in the sense, or I can definitely say OA. I don't know about other programs, maybe Alan on ACA. It's like art school. In a sense, like we're all artists here in this, and we're having a seminar, but you know, you're a painter, you're a sculptor, you know, you're multimedia, you're a web designer, you're a photographer, you're, think of all that, you know, you do the cloth thing, you know, we got quilter, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, so, Look, listen for the similarities, because at some point, if, if that were true, if we were an art class with all of these different types, you know, we'd be like, well, that's not true for me, or that's not whatever, but, <clears throat> but if we b- bring it up and identify as artists expressing our true selves, you know, through creation, then we, we can all come together. So, you know, I, I have a... You know, compulsive overeating, I, my top weight was 200. I came in, my major relapse led to bulimia. I also realized that in doing my bulimia inventory that there are four types of bulimia. You know, there's not the binging purging. That's like the obvious kind. The four types of bulimia is you binge. Bulimia is binging and then getting rid of it. Whereas compulsive overeating is binging and then wearing it. So bulimia, you binge and then you engage in a behavior to get rid of the binge so that no one knows that you binged. So if you're, you know, so if, you know, you engage, so that's over-exercising, under-eating for several days, you know, or not eating for days, laxatives, and then purging. So keep that in mind. So my story is top weight 200. Um, my lowest weight was 138. I'm 5'7". I was a size 8. My friends were actually a little concerned for me about that, that weight. Um, and, of course, I thought I was still fat. 
because I had fat on my body. I was like, well, I still have fat on my body, hence, therefore, I'm fat. Um, uh, then, you know, recovery again. Then um, my average, my less than 50-year-old weight uh, size was a size 10. I turned 50. I am a size 12, and I'm good with it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not willing to do the craziness to try to hold on to my 30-year-old body. I'm like, no, I get to be a woman, a woman who ages, who has a metabolism that slows down, and I'm going to go up a size, and I'm good with it. So, you know, for young people who come in the room and see a bunch of old women who, you know, look like they're a little soft around them, it's like, yeah, that's how we're supposed to look, you know? Like, you know, we've all been brainwashed by the media. So, again, so there we are. We're going back to, you know, you've just, the newcomer coming in, she's like, you know, I think I belong here. She comes in, and then here's the poem, The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Now, I want to talk about the voices a little bit. Some of those voices are all of the people that you are taking care of, all of the things that you feel that are really important and that they need your help. Recovery, in a sense, is a selfish program. Because you have to make saving your own life your number one priority. And guess what? It takes a lot of a time commitment. You have to go to meetings. You have to call your sponsor. You have to connect with your fellows. You have to make time to do step work. You have to do. It is a time commitment. And there are going to be a lot of voices, external and internal. You know, you're being selfish. You're, you know, don't, you know. So just keep this poem with you. Keep this in mind, you know, that it's like you are deciding to put your recovery first. You are deciding to save your own life. Also, I sponsor women with children. And I'm like, if you want to stop this disease from, from being passed on, you know, put your recovery first. If you really want to do the best thing you can for your kids, put your recovery first because you are going to learn how to get out of addiction and how to healthily emotionally regulate. And that is what you're going to pass on to your kids. You know, so if the voices start telling you that, you know, you you can't go to a meeting because something else is more important, make a program call. You know, make a text group and say the voices are telling me that this is more important than my own recovery. It's like, well, you know, is, is what you're doing going to actually save your life? You know, think about that. 
unless it's therapy, then yes, you have to go to therapy. So, you know, so that's another step zero. Another thing is, is that I have these, um, and this again, I'm speaking a lot to the newcomer. I always try to speak to the newcomer because um, I figure that lowest common denominator and old timers can, you know, get some information or not, um, you know. So this is a handout. This is what I needed. So I really struggled with the concept of disease, right? I was like, oh, that's, you guys are being overdramatic. So, and the other thing I struggled with was, um, there are two things I struggled with at different times in my recovery. And one is the concept of disease. And the other was um, comparing um, OA to AA. So I have a, a seemingly controversial position around AA. AA saved my life, but OA is not AA. Number one, it's a process addiction, which is different than a substance addiction. Number two, um, 89% of OA is women. And women's relationship to food and to our bodies is emotional and political. So it's a complicated issue. So I personally do not like it when people from AA come in and try to tell us how to work this program. It's like, no, this is about food, and this is about women and our relationship to our bodies, and what it would be great if you shared your program, which you have done, and shared your experience working AA, but don't preach to me a disease that you don't actually have in common with me. The other thing, I don't have enough handouts, but I have, if you want, if, you know, obviously you can tell I'm a bit of a nerd. I research this stuff and I love it. Um, I have a handout around how um, men and women's bodies are metabolized differently. And I only, and so if you want it, you have to take a picture of it. But the reason why I do that is because too often I hear women compare themselves to the men in the room and how they lose weight. I'm like, stop Stop finding another reason to, to beat yourself up around how you're doing this program wrong. So if you need that information, also you can just Google it. That's how I got it. I just Googled it. So let's look at um, disease. A disorder or structure or function in a human, animal, or plant, especially one that produces specific signs or symptoms or that affects a specific location is not simply a direct result of physical injury. A particular quality, habit, or disposition regarded as adversely affecting a person or group. So when you look at that definition, okay, my relationship to food is not normal. You know, I eat in a way that is injurious to myself. So in a sense, my function, my normal human function is disordered. Okay, so disease just means that the organism is not functioning the way that it was designed to function. And as a result, negative consequences are appearing in the in the organism. So hopefully that can help you with the debating thing around people saying, oh, my disease, this is a disease. Da, 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 da. And you're like, oh, no, it's not chicken pox. It's not whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. It is a disease, okay? 
So hopefully this ends that debate system and we can just move on. So again, this is a lot of the, you know, step one for me around because I have another handout. Step one is the principle of honesty. Step one is what is true. So when we go to I am powerless over food and my life is unmanageable or I'm powerless over compulsive overeating and my life is unmanageable. Step one is asking me to accept the truth of my situation. What is true? Now, for me, um, I'm, you can tell, I'm organized Capricorn. And so uh, the word unmanageable, when I came in, didn't work for me because I was very good at managing. So I didn't really, and also a lot of times, you know, unlike AA where, uh, you meet a lot of people who, you know, they're not paying their rent. They're, you know, you hear stories of like, oh, yeah, your life is obviously un- unmanageable. But for a lot of us in OA and in Al-Anon, you know, um, we come, we're like, you know, my rent's paid. I've got a job. I mean, we have all these metrics that it's like, how is, how is my life unmanageable? It looks so good. Well, one of the ways that I got around that was I changed the phrase to... I am powerless over compulsive overeating, and my life is not what I want it to be despite my best efforts. So I've come up to the rooms of recovery, and I'm here because my life, experienced from the inside, is not what I want it to be. And I have given it everything I've got, you know? Type A alpha female. I'm like I've, I've gone to school. I've, I've like whatever, and I'm and I've tried everything, and I keep wanting it to get better, and I keep thinking that I'm going to do stuff, and the food just issue just will not go away, which is what's constantly telling me that I'm actually not happy. You know, I'm not satisfied. I'm not whatever, and so that translation, and my life is not what I want it to be. Despite everything I've given to my life, my intelligence, you know, my, I don't know, my uh, physical exertions, my willingness to do tasks and run errands and my ability to adult. Let's just say that, you know, Um, and so that really helped me kind of reframe my step one around like, you know, Um, Am I, do I feel a sense of love and peace when I look at my body? No, I don't. Do I, um, am I able to only eat one piece of cake? Nope, can't do that. Um, Do I feel comfortable in a room full of people? No, I don't. You know, not really, unless maybe it's a small group and I know everyone. You know, like just all of these metrics around, you know, how I'm not really comfortable in my own skin. So this is, I think, really important, and this is the thing that, this is why I so readily agreed to talk about this, which is that step one is foundational. Now, using this visual chart, I want you to think about your ability to be honest with yourself and your ability to have 
to know what is true is what is going to determine how wide that bottom platform is, which is then going to determine how tall that arch can be, right? So in another way of putting it is, is that it's the step one is, is the base of the pyramid. So the breadth and depth of my promises that I get in my life and the gifts of recovery is completely dependent on my step one. It is completely dependent on the fact that every morning I wake up and I know that I am a compulsive eater, a sugar addict, and a bulimic, and that of and by myself, my life gets quickly unmanageable. My life quickly turns into you know, what I don't want it to be. Now, in the beginning, there were some obvious metrics like cutting people off, getting angry at people, clerks, whatever. There was some stuff like that. Um, attracting friends that, you know, would lash out. Attracting people who would, you know, want to just, you know, use me as a battery to, to motivate themselves. You know, um, attracting bosses that had really unreasonable expectations. I mean, I had a lot of metrics. The great thing about having time in recovery is, is that as I've shifted my interior realm and I now, you know, feel loving and compassionate. I'm not done, by the way. I mean, I got mad at someone the other day. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, yeah, people came up and knocked on my door. I have a no soliciting sign, you know, and people I work from home half the time and they knocked on my door and I was pissed. I was just like, read the sign. And they're like, oh, we're not soliciting. I fucking went and got a dictionary. You know what I mean? (laughs) They were already gone. But I was like, I printed it out. You know, I like have it ready for the next. Because that's their new thing, by the way. It's like, oh, we're not soliciting. Yes, you are. If you expect change in my behavior, you are soliciting. So let me just put that out. And that was two days ago. So, you know. But again... So I lost track of what I say. Oh, so my internal metrics. So, but the way that I went through that experience was like less than 24 hours. So regulating myself back to a place of, um, uh, God, they, uh, harmony. There's a great Buddhist term. It's like equilibrium or something like that. Um, if anyone knows it, shut Equanimity, thank you. So regulating myself back to a place of equanimity. Like that, it only took 24 hours. Now that was also a trigger for me because I'm a survivor. And so when I say no and you violate my no, it actually activates my body. So that's why it kind of took that long. That's why I got that upset by it. And that's why it's like it took that long for me to calm down and I had to use all my tools, you know, to kind of get to a place where it was like, Okay, you know, but my goal is, is that the next time a couple of wonderful young people who are out there doing good work, and I am glad that they're doing that work, I just want my no respected, you know what I mean? I I have a plan. They're going to open up the door and they're going to tell me I'm not soliciting and I'm going to say, well, I know that your supervisor told you to say that. So I'm going to give you a definition of soliciting and I'm going to let you know that you're actually violating my boundary and leave you to make a choice about what you want to do with that and then be friendly and kind about it. So I get to, you know, have a boundary, assert, educate, not be snarky, not be mean. I wasn't snarky, but I was, you could see on my face, I was not happy. I was like, nope. So, um, 
So anyway, that's step one, what is true. And the, the wider that that goes with what's true about me, what's true about all of my wiring, and this is what I want to get to in the afternoon, without apology, without apology, just like here's the truth of me. You know, here's, you know, I'm a, I'm a weird shape. You know what I mean? I'm like, I've got, I'm an adult child of two alcoholic parents, you know, who did the best they could, but they were fucking crazy. You know what I mean? And we were middle class, which made it super crazier, you know, because there was this front of looking really good. But yet inside, it was like, I did not want to be there. And, and they were so self-involved that I was left alone. And thank God for food. Thank God for food. So food kept me, food comforted me, food numbed me from, you know, the pain of neglect. You know, being neglected is just as detrimental as being beaten. You know, because basically the message is the same. You are not worth love and parenting. That's the exact same message. Whether you're beating them or you're totally neglecting the child, that's what you're telling the child. You are not worth my love and compassion and parenting. So, and my parents, you know, they were adult children of alcoholics. I mean, it's a, it's a family disease. So I've done a lot of work. I don't, I hold them responsible for their actions, which they need to do, but I don't blame them. It's a family system disease. They passed on what they knew. Again, another step one, what is true? You know, what is true is that I'm powerless over my need to eat in order to emotionally regulate. So basically another definition, I don't know if it's in that sheet, I hope it is, is is that recently they've sort of defined addiction as addiction is um, when you replace people with a thing that you use to emotionally regulate. So, for example, before recovery, I got upset, I ate. I did a bunch of other things, but this is OA. I ate. You know, I did a bunch of other things, and when those things weren't available, I always had my best friend. Been there since I was two, three years old, you know what I mean, if not older. I was like, you can take away anything from me. You can take away any drug, any behavior, any whatever. I was like, go ahead, take it, you know, because I've got my cake and my zingers, you know what I mean? I, I lo- uh, Yeah, there was like, you know... I, I was I'm snobby about food in a certain way, but when it came to my sugar drug, you know what I mean? I wanted hostess. You know what I mean? I mean, give me the crack. Give me the hard stuff. Um, <coughs> so anyway, so that's, so the addiction is, is like, so before recovery, I have a feeling. I'm not comfortable in my body with this feeling. Quite honestly, for me, I was so disassociated. I'm like, I don't even actually want to be having a feeling right now. So I'm living from my neck up, and I've got these feelings that I don't want to be feeling. And so how I contain or regulate them is, you know, I go and I eat. And so then the food, you know, carbs and sugar, they actually have a soporific effect. Sugar is actually a painkiller. They use it for babies instead of giving them painkiller. They give them liquid sugar. I mean, it's a real thing. And, um, and then, or what I could do is I could binge and get so uncomfortable that now my feelings are all about feeling uncomfortable. So, you know, or I could, you know, binge. And then when I binge and I'm uncomfortable, then I could start obsessing about my weight. 
Now all my feelings are about my weight and my body, which then I think I can control. Because then it becomes, then I framed it up as a problem that's solvable. You know, whereas the world being not a nice place with bad people in it doing bad things is a problem that I cannot solve, and yet I'm completely powerless about it. And I don't like that feeling. It makes me feel very, very vulnerable and small up against a huge, vast, unknown power. And that's very, first of all, that's not fun for anyone. But then also as an, a, a little, as a rec- trauma survivor, that's actually triggering for me. So I can't, so I don't want that framework. I'm like, no, I'd rather take all of those feelings and displace them over here onto fixing my body, eating, getting a diet, doing all of that work. And then because that's something that has the illusion of control and it's something that the world is telling me I can fix. I'm like, yeah, give me, because I want a sense of power. If I'm looking over here, I feel powerless. You know what I mean? I feel helpless and powerless and vulnerable and I I can't get up and face the day. I've got to go to work. I, you know, my parents spent all their money. I, I, I have, I've been on my own since I was 18. You know what I mean? So it's like, I got to work. I got to take care of myself. I got to, and because of my conditioning, I got to go out in the world and look like I know what the fuck I'm doing. You know what I mean? I got to front and, and, you know, inspire confidence in people. I can't be feeling this way. So one of the things is if you frame it up over here as food in my body, then I have this false sense of control and this false sense of power and this ability to think like, I can fix this. I can fix this. I just need to find the right diet. I just need to find that right combination. And then I will get this thing under control. And over here, I'm in charge and I feel a sense of power and control until... Well, I mean, I started this at 12, you know what I mean? And so 28, I'm just like, it's still not happening. Actually, for, in my story is, is that around 20, I just was like, well, I'm going to be a fat person. So I, I you know, people are like, oh, I got, I'm like, I didn't. I resigned myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to be the fat girl. You know what I mean? And I even was like, well, I get to eat whatever the fuck I want. You know what I mean? So I, I was like, great. Now, the fact that I didn't like to look at my own body in the mirror was just a price to pay. You know, the fact that I only went shopping once a year because I couldn't stand to go shopping. You know, the fact that if anyone thought, if anyone in any way indicated that they were attracted to me and I didn't trust them because I'm like, well, I'm fat. You can't be attracted to me. You know what I mean? So it's like, that was just a price to pay. So instead of them being attracted to me, it was like, what do you want from me? And then it became like this negotiation. Like, okay, maybe I'll do that. You know? So that, but there was no possibility of authentic connection because I didn't believe that that was possible. Because I didn't believe I was worthy of that. Can I just pause and say, is everyone getting how this is step one? Yeah. What is true? That's the process of recovery, is really understanding what is really going on here. What is true? And breaking out of all of the lies and the delusions that I have sold myself so that I can maintain this dysfunctional family system and play the game. And fortunately for me over here in the disease, I live in a broken culture which tells me like, that I'm doing it right over here. 
And it's really only through pain, and this is the gift of recovery, is that, you know, in many, many different ways, not just 12-step, but many, many different ways, it's when we are confronted with not getting the dream, not getting the ego dream, and we go into some sort of painful crisis that all of a sudden we're forced, if we're lucky, to question the whole game. But how we experience that in my in my experience and as, as sponsoring other women is we, we experience as failure. You know what I mean? But let me tell you something. Failing at this game over here, you fucking won. You fucking won. Because that's your that's your way out of that game and into something different. And you know, people start looking for something different. And there are many different paths for something different. And for whatever reason, 12 Steps spoke to me. It was in the Bay Area, and so it was agnostic recovery. Other, otherwise, I would not have the time that I have. I would have had to have gotten a lot more of a bottom. But, you know, just divine timing and whatever. I was very fortunate to go into rooms where no one used the word God. They used the word higher power. And I was like, oh, I'll sign up for that. I don't have any problem with that. And then by the time I heard them use the word God and was totally offended, I was already, I had already bought the farm. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, selling pieces of land or renting property, trying to get more people onto my farm. I was like, when did God come into this? You know what I mean? So, but it worked. It's like God tricked me. You know, but anyway, so step one, coming in, being confronted with what is true, the powerless over, um, uh, I'm powerless over compulsive overeating, or I like that they added compulsive food behaviors. You know what I mean? I'm really grateful. Also, I sponsor anorexics, and let me tell you something. I want to bust the game of the anorexics. The disease for anorexia is control. So if you are not addressing that you are powerless over control, you are hiding in OA. You are hiding. Now, you may have, there are anorexics who are bulimic and compulsive overeaters, and we can certainly address that. But if, again, step one, what is true is that anorexia has a side to it that's all its own, which is it's the disease of control. And that needs to be addressed. And I, you know, I honestly, I would just pray about it. There's programs out there. You can read some literature. You know, you don't have to leave OA. I'm just saying your anorexic disease will hide behind how compulsive overeaters and bulimics work their program because they talk about it differently. So when I am working with anorexics, we talk about control a lot you know i'm not saying it doesn't apply i'm just saying i've learned that you know it's it's a little bit of a separate beast the way that a a hundred pounders are a little bit you know it's like it's kind of like the thing that i was talking about like oh we've got you know woodworkers over here and and we've got photographers over here and you know, some, we, sometimes we really need to pay attention to the differences so that we get the full process of recovery and so that the disease does not have a place to hide in the rooms. Okay? How are we doing on time? Does anyone... What, what, when are we going? 11? Okay, whoa. Okay. Um... <laughs> So what I I have, let me do a little bit of an admin so I don't forget.
Um, so these are my cards. Uh, when I was at the um, convention, people wanted my contact information and I was shouting it and people were in it and that was getting recorded and I was like, you know. Um, so Vista, I was like, you know, 10 bucks. There are some cards. So um, just so you know, I have a, a G drive that has all of these on there. I also have all of my recordings from the workshops that I've given on there. Um, I started a podcast this summer. It's just, here's the story of the podcast. It's not because I want the podcast out there. I don't. Um, but I, I sponsor a lot of people, and I sponsor people virtually. And I was really, you know, I have to say, I can't even imagine 30 years. You know, at 26 years, I'm so tired of saying the same things over and over and over and over again. So, especially with virtual sponsees where I'm just like, so I started recording myself and then I was afraid that I was going to max out my G drive. And so I Googled like, where can I store free audio files, <laughs> you know, and one thing led to another and now I have this little podcast. Um, and so all of my work assignments that I'm going to go through with you are uh, just the step one ones are on um, uh, my G drive. Uh, the podcast, if you go there, has the link to my G Drive, and I believe it has the link to my email address. So on that note, this is, again, a little bit of an admin. You know, I'm a hardcore introvert, but I'm very passionate about this, and so I have a lot of information. Afterwards, I'm going to really need to shut it down, and I'm going to be in the back. So if you could just give me a little bit of time um, before coming up to me, uh, I would really kind of like that. Um, and same thing with the afternoon. But having said that, I love when people reach out to me. I love when they listen to my podcast and they have questions. Like, I'm very passionate about this because 12-step recovery has saved my life. The life that I have today blows my mind. So let me, let me take a moment to tell a little bit of my story here just to, just to illuminate this point. When I was little... I was, um, you know, my mom and dad, we were living, well, at the time, you know, they were a young couple. You know, my mom was 19, my dad was 20, so my parents are young. Um, and I uh, got tested, and I got tested, my IQ tested, and it got tested high, and so I got to go to um, a different school. And so, and I was very into school because the structure, I was getting attention. I mean, it was just like, it was a haven from my home life, you know? Um, I had an identity at school. So that's how important school was for me. And when, um, by the, so that was in elementary school. And then in uh, high school, uh, first day of freshman class, um, we were in a separate group. Um, it was 60 of us in this separate group. It was kind of like the teacher was like, okay, so when you go to college, and the names of the colleges that he uh, shouted out were, you know, Berkeley, Yale, Harvard, whatever, right? And that was my first day of freshman. I was like, well, I'm going to go to Berkeley. That was freshman. By, by senior year, I was a dropout working full-time at Wendy's, weighing 200 pounds, and I was selling crystal meth and smoking pot and I was travel and I was hanging out with people you don't want to be hanging out with people who have guns in their car people who d deal drugs 
That's where I was at 18. Somehow, some part of me was like, hang on to the school thing. You know, I came, I, my parents had moved to San Diego, hence the crystal meth, although now it's everywhere. Um, I came up to the Bay Area. I just held on to the school. I got myself into Berkeley, thank God. You know, it took me years to graduate because of the shame, but I did. But in Berkeley, I hit the bottom of like, I can't, you know, I was just falling apart and I had the gray, and I lost the one thing that I love, which is I fell in love, and we actually wanted to get married, and my behavior was incomprehensible, and that relationship ended. It was a woman at the time. I've been with men. Now I'm kind of just on the fence. I'm like, I don't really care anymore. You know, are you kind and loving, and do we have a good time? I'm good with it. Um, but anyway, but th- losing that was like, that's why I ended up in ACOA. And that's when I learned that you can be middle class and alcoholic at the same time. That's when I learned about neglect. That's when I learned that I'm not, it wasn't personal to me. I learned about the disease. I got into a bunch of other 12-step program. I didn't know how to do anything. That's the thing with it. I didn't know how to, so I got into MA, you know, oh, I shouldn't be smoking pot, you know what I mean, because whatever. I got into DA, oh, here's how you balance a checkbook. Got into Al-Anon, like, my parents are still crazy. How do I deal with them? And then I got busted um, and was 12-stepped into OA because I was in DA, and I was working with a woman who was in OA, and we were doing my spending plan, and she's like, well, where's your money for clothes? And I'm like, I don't buy clothes. You know what I mean? And I thought, like, here, I'm doing something right. Can we move on to the next subject, please? And she kept asking me why I didn't buy clothes. And she's like, well, can I take you to an OA? I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, can I take you to an OA meeting? And I'm like, sure. You know what I mean? At that point, I mean, it was like, fuck, you know, fuck it. I mean, like, that'd be my fourth or, you know, or fifth, whatever, 12-step meeting. I'm like, I'll go to any of them now, you know? And so I went, and I walked in. And it's the only 12-step meeting where the first day I cried the entire time. And let me tell you something. I'm not a crier. I turned it off somewhere around four years old, and I have spent a lot of money in therapy to learn to be able to cry again. I'm a lot better today. Today I can actually feel the tears well up. And then I realized, like, that's my form of crying. Like, I can't compare it to people who just can seem to just get those waterworks going. I'm like, that's... That's not really me. You know, the fact that I can feel the feelings and my tears and my eyes well up and whatever, that's, that's good. I'm having the experience at the same time. But that's what I mean when in like 1998 I'm sitting there crying because I had no idea, none, that other women felt about their bodies the way that I felt about mine. You know, that they felt about food. Like as long as I have my food, I can do anything. As long as I have my food... You know what I mean? Whatever you need. And also the idea of like, I hate going shopping. I don't like putting on clothes. The criticism of the body. My favorite fantasy, and that was another sort of escape mechanism for me, especially as a, I was an only child for 11 years, and then my brother was born, and then I was a built-in babysitter. You know, and so that overdeveloped sense of responsibility. So I'm very, you know, independent and resourceful, and then I'm also, you know, you know, overdeveloped responsibility. The reason why I don't have any kids is for two reasons. One, I felt like I already had one. And two, I don't want to pass on the family disease. So that's why I don't have any children. Instead, I have nine sponsees 
plus other people mentoring, and that's where I get to express my maternal side. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm very grateful for that, and they're very grateful for that because most of them have dysfunctional alcoholic mothers, and so they have absent mothers like I did and had to find surrogate mothers like I did, and then I get to be their surrogate mom. You know, in that sense of having a woman, you know, as a maternal source who is like, here's how you do life. Here's how you be an adult. Here's how you emotionally regulate. Here's how you get in touch with all of the aspects of yourself. Here's how you heal your wounded little girl. You know, here's how you deal with your angry teenager. You know, here's how you deal with your sexual, you know, active young, let's bring it, you know, 20 year old. Like, here's how you, you know, embrace all of these aspects of yourself. So that's why I'm here is because the life that I have today, honestly, blows my fucking mind. And I'm not bragging. I'm saying like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Like, I can't believe because I have to tell you that my chemo lasted a long fucking time. So, um, you know, healing trauma is no joke. And what I can tell you is just please, please keep at it. My experience was is that years of darkness with breaks of light, darkness coming back, breaks of light. Um, But I just had the tenacity, which I think is the gift that I say, God, because we're in here, good orderly direction. I don't say it out there because I don't want to confuse people. But, you know. I, it's a really it's monosyllabic placeholder. It's it's a really good word, you know. What I mean? But um, I really think that there are sort of gifts that we get, you know. And one of mine, which actually often works against me, is tenacity. But in this, like I'll hold on to people that I really need to let go of, or I'll hold on to projects that I really need to let go of. And I've learned to recognize that. But at the same time, I held on to recovery, and I held on to it because. I had no other options, and I held on to it because I'm stubborn, and I held on to it because I'm arrogant and prideful, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get this thing. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, I'm not failing this. You know what I mean? I'm not. I mean, so those are examples of how, you know, whatever works. You know what I mean? If you come here because you just want the diet plan, fine. If it gets your butt in a chair... Who cares? You know what I mean? If you come here because, you know, you want to flirt or whatever, fine. If it gets your button, just pay attention during the meeting. You know what I mean? Let something seep in, you know? Okay. So on the step one, I'm just going to go over a couple of my um, homework assignments. And again, you can find all of this on... um, If you can't find it, you should. This is the first time I've used these cards so on the Podbean, on, my, on the homepage, it should have a link to the drive that has all of these handouts, all of this stuff that I haven't even mentioned, and audio files, and just stuff that I think is useful for recovery. If you can't find it, my email address, or my phone number is on there and whatever, and then I'll send you a link. Okay. So the first thing that I had to do, oh, okay, a little bit more of a story. So what happened was, is I came in, I did the steps. Um, I didn't really like the workbook. It's just really not my, my thing. I did it, you know, but I didn't really have any, like, experience. I'm, I'm just a good student, and I'll do what I'm told to do. Um, and then what happened is, is that uh, 
I had um, trauma memories happen. My story is is that you know at 200 pounds, you know I 200 pounds was my top weight. My average weight was 185, and the reason for that is that my dad weighed 185, and my dad was a bully, and he would posture. He didn't punch or hit. That was my grandfather, um, but as a little girl, you don't know that your dad's not going to throw a punch. You know, if he's posturing at you and clenching his fist, you think, oh my God, my dad's going to hit me. So some psych, this is all hindsight. It's not like I knew this as a kid, but I was always kind of curious as to why I maintained a 185 weight. Like somehow if I got up, I'd always go down. If I got too low, I'd gain. Like I wanted to surface around 185 and then I put together through step work that, oh, that's what my dad weighed. You know what I mean? So the idea being that it's like for me to feel safe in the world and to be able to go out in the world, I have to weigh a man's weight. The other thing that happened is, is that, you know, I was a tomboy. I know you're shocked. And um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, I was a tomboy, and also I had already been incested by that point. I didn't know it. I had actually been um, attempted to be incested, and I managed to get away. So that was the story that I did remember was the time that I got away. And, and then, you know, there I am, a tomboy, and I'm playing with boys, and they're my friends. And, you know, because I grew up with male cousins. And so... Puberty hits, and I'm like, the game changes. And I'm like, not for me, it doesn't. Like, I was like, and this is when the disease in the, at home really started to get bad. You know, like my, my family's alcoholism, really, my home life started to get really bad with, when my brother was born. He had um, behavioral issues. And then also, if you've got two narcissistic parents who don't really want to get too involved... And then you get a, you have a second child that's very demanding. It just created this incredible chaos at home. Um, and so when puberty hit, I was like, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. And one sem- and in one semester, I gained 60 pounds. And so that was my way of saying, stop. I'm not playing this game. You know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden we were on the field, and then we're at a high school dance. And I'm like, where'd the field go? You know what I mean? And there's all this like preening and posturing and who's going to dance with who and whatever. And I'm just like, fucking, I don't want to dance with anyone. Like, you know, and so a way for me to get out of that game was to desexualize my body and just put the 60 pounds on. You know, unfortunately, though, I mean, I did not do that consciously. So I didn't want to be the fat girl. I just couldn't stop eating. Because basically, life was getting so out of control for me that I couldn't handle it. And for me, my downfall was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, as thick as I wanted them, and several times a day. So my form of my disease is that I'm not a bulk eater. I just like super fatty, high-calorie, dense foods, you know. Um, so, uh, so then, you know, that's kind of how that started. And then I came, come into recovery. I start uncovering my story. I start getting the promises. And then I hit a place where, you know, I knew I could tell, like, my life was still just not quite 
you know, at that point I had 13 years and I was like, you know, there's just something still not quite right and I can't figure out what it is. Actually, excuse me, it was a it was when I was 34 I started to just so I started working with this particular therapist and I said, you know, I don't understand. There's still something where I'm still very armored. I'm still, you know, even though my life is a, a million times better and I'm, you know, leading meetings and stuff like that, I just, you know, I can't and so I started doing some work and that's when um the incest memories came up and and there were times where I didn't get away and that was devastating for me and that's when I relapsed but by that point I had lost the weight and so for the first time I you know was in that place of having lost the weight binging and now I'm terrified about gaining the weight so now I have developed bulimia you know which I learned how to do in the rooms You know, it's true. I didn't know about it until I was in the rooms. I was like, that's genius. Why didn't I think of that? You know? Um, and then in doing, again, a sort of food inventory, I realized, oh, I was doing it. That's how I was maintaining my 185. Is like I, was, I would do these huge binges, and then I would just under-eat for a few days. And I remember at 185 one time, like, like thinking about like how I only ate, and I'm like, I don't understand why I'm 185. I hardly eat anything. It's like, well, I would just eat normally. I'd do this binge, and then I'd eat normally. I'd do this binge. So anyway, and so what happened was is I was terrified because the powerlessness had hit a whole new level. And so that's when what I did was, and also at that time in OA, so many people were eating sugar, and I was really discovering that I could not handle sugar. And I was not getting the support I needed in OA. This is all in the Bay Area. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to get an AA sponsor who would sponsor me as if I were an alcoholic. And so I went to, I drove, I remember the first time I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive to an AA meeting. I'm going to convince someone, like, you know, look, I'm an alcoholic with sugar. Will you please sponsor me? I walked into the AA meeting. There was a table by the door <laughs> covered in cakes and cookies and whatever and I was like and I just panicked and I left and here's God's grace I was in another fellowship and there was a woman who was in that fellowship and she was in AA and I went up to her and I begged her I said will you please please sponsor me and I told her my story I told her why she was like Uh, I, you know, she didn't know what to do, but she had the sense to say, let me ask my sponsor. So she called her sponsor, and her sponsor said to her, and I owe this woman my life, she said, if you can help that woman, then you sponsor her. And so we went through the big, so she treated me exactly as if I were an alcoholic. We went through the big book, and what we did was, and I educated her on changing alcohol to sugar alcohol to sugar. So these are the assignments that I have. So how about before we get into these? Um, it's kind of a little bit late, but does, do you guys want to break or do you want to just plow through? Plow through? Okay. I should have done that a little bit earlier. I didn't quite get like how long this was. Okay. But again, like take care of yourself. Stand up. You know, you're, you're not going to bother me at all. I do that. I'm like, you know, take care of yourselves. That was your first assignment. Okay, so um, I, I'm also going to plug, um, I know this is not OA conference approved literature, but I'm going to break the rules, which is, is that a woman's way through the 12 steps. 
So I give that as an assignment um, in tandem with the AA, all the AA literature, the OA literature, and then the woman's way through the 12 steps. So I had to write definitions of empower, powerless, and helpless. And so these steps I had to do, I had to meet with my sponsor. Here's what I have to do, and here's my program today, sort of. Um, the homework assignment's a little bit differently. So here's what I had to do for years. Um, so every, so the story there is like, I remember like in the rooms, like I'd meet my sponsor once in a while, we'd whatever. And then one time I went to a meeting, this is before this 2006 experience. One time I went to, and there was this very dynamic gay guy up there and he was just gung-ho and whatever. I was like, oh my God, this guy's great. And I asked for his number and then I called him up and I said, yeah, are you available for sponsorship? And he's like, yeah. So we'd meet once a week and we'd go over steps. And I was like, I like, dude, you are taking this program way too seriously. Once a week, I was like, no. And I was like, you know, that's not going to work for me, you know, and I hung up. Fast forward to 2006, me talking to Kimberly, begging her to save my life. She's like, okay, so she's looking at her calendar and she's like, okay, how about um, 10 a.m. on Sundays? And all I heard was Sundays. And I just kept my mouth shut and I just said, sure. So the gift of desperation for me every fucking time. You know, I wish I could tell you that it's like, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I just make these wise choices. I'm like, no, I don't. You know what I mean? I do more now. And the thing is, is that the great thing is, is that I have less tolerance for discomfort now. But in the beginning, I had high tolerance for discomfort. So I had to get really uncomfortable and then I'd become willing to to just be like, okay, I, I give up. I'll just do it. You know what I mean? Like this summer, I have health issues as a result of, you know, 36 years, well, 50 years now, but 36 years of, of um, PTSD, uh, my adrenal system is whacked and it's wrong and it's messed up and I experience weird ex- um, periods of exhaustion that are freaky. And, um, and this summer, you know, I had another relapse around my health issues and my naturopath was I got a new naturopath and she's like, okay, I want you to give up um, dairy and grains. Now, grains, I'm like, okay, I thought that I was going to die with cheese in my mouth. You know what I mean? I was like, I could not imagine. I mean, my family's French, okay? You do not give up cheese. You know what I mean? I already went against the family and gave up the wine. So now I am a fucking heretic. Like, you can't believe So, and I just said, okay, you know, I just said, okay. And so you can't, you can't manufacture that place where you just surrender. My experience is, is that when I know that needs to happen, I just remember my past, that I've hit those places in the past and I've managed to, to find that place. So I start to pray that I just hit that place sooner. I'm all like, God, can we just get there sooner? You know what I mean? Like, what do I need to do to hit that place of just the gift of desperation? You know? And, and I just pray about it. So, um, so the definitions empower, powerless, helpless. So when Kimberly did that, she's like, we're going to meet 
you know, um, 10 a.m. for an hour on Sundays, you're going to have a reading assignment and a writing assignment. Again, thank God I was a little good student. So this really spoke my language. I was, it, also, I really like like in terms of this nebulous like recovery thing, like give me something to do, like give me something concrete that gives me a sense that something is actually happening here, you know? And it was a way in for me. Now I know that it's like half of this is magic and half of this is hard, hard work, you know? And I need to do the hard work so that the magic can happen. But for me, the magic is what happens in the fellowship, you know? And whether that's, you know, through coming to retreats or going to meetings or I have a lot of text groups You know, um, where it's like we connect and I actually have on my podcast, I have um, a pitch where it's about it requires we need two higher powers in order to recover. If you only have the fellowship, but you don't believe in a higher power, you're going to have a really hard time in this program and vice versa. If you have a higher power, but you do not connect to this program, you're going to have a really hard time trying to recover. It takes two higher powers. And that's not me. That's in the big book. You know, it's it's in the literature. So um, so every day I you know, she's like, okay, I want you to call me every day. Um, You're doing your homework every day. You're going to it's three for maintenance, four for recovery. So three meetings a week, um, you know, when you're maintaining. And she said, and you're not, you know, what I mean. Uh, but it's four for recovery. What I tell my sponsees is those meetings, two of those need to be O.A., Um, Unless you're in a rural area, they need to be face-to-face while you're going through the steps. You know what I mean? Because, again, it's the chemo thing. You know, you need to be going to those support groups where you're hearing because the disease is really going to want to get you to quit. It's going to want to get you to not, to get too busy. It's going to find ways, you know what I mean, to get you to hold on to it. I also think of the disease as a perpetrator. And the thing about a perpetrator is the first thing a perpetrator wants to do or needs to do is get you alone. A perpetrator needs to isolate you and in order, and in order for the perpetration. So the disease is a perpetrator. In order for the disease to continue to strive and grow, you know what I mean? And, and they say that diseases you know, evolve to be smarter. You know, they're organisms that want to, you know, replicate themselves just like we are. You know, that the disease wants to get you alone. So coming and going to meetings um, or getting online, if you're rural and you're doing phone meetings, let me tell you something. Being on the phone not saying anything is not attending a meeting. That is auditing a meeting. Okay? The reason, so don't attend OA. That's not what this is. This is a tribe, and you join tribes. You know, you get to come in here and decide if you're going to do this thing or not. But if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you join us. And going to meetings and fellowshipping, and and I'm an introvert. I don't like the big whatever. So it's just like one or two people over here, one or two people in this meeting. You say hello. If you don't have anything to say, you raise your hand and you say, Hi, my name's Nicole. I'm a sugar addict bulimic and I'm just here to claim my seat. Thank you. You own your membership. 
You have to participate. You have to save your own life. So engage in the process of recovery. And think of that word engage. You are engaging. It is a dynamic. So when Father Terry, who my sponsees, we jokingly call him my husband because I listen to him nonstop and I quote him all the time. He says, you know, when they throw you the ball, throw it back. Engage in the process of recovery. Okay. So anyway, so that's the background. My sponsees also, um, they have to uh, share their food with someone. Um, I'm on a food text group. There are about four of us. Um, I have another sponsee where they, she just has a food buddy. And you just are telling the truth. So this is all step one. What is true? No judgment, no whatever. That is an intense practice. You know what I mean? Is to be able to share your food with someone. You know, without saying, oh, well, I was really, I, I, well, here's, and then I, you know, and so that's why I, no. You know what I mean? They don't, first of all, why are, it's a fellow in the rooms. You guys get to practice with each other, like, here's the truth of me today. Yeah, I ate too much here, I didn't do this or whatever. You just tell your truth, and they are just a compassionate witness and then they tell their truth, and you get to compassionately wish it. There's no commenting. There's no suggestions. There's no fixing. You're practicing the step one, the principle of honesty. So again, the disease wants to isolate you and get you alone. And so what do you do? You get out of isolation. Step one, I am you know, powerless over food. My life is not what I want it to be despite my best efforts. What is true for me today? I'm a compulsive overeater, sugar addict, bulimic. I need to be part of this fellowship. What have I done today that is engaged in the process of recovery? Well, the first thing I did was I hit my knees and I said the prayer of my ancestors. The second thing I did was, you know, I said hi on my text group. Like I'm connecting to my, you know what I mean? Am I going to a meeting today? No. Okay, then what else am I doing? Oh, I'll listen to a podcast. You know what I mean? Or maybe I'll make a program call. Or maybe I'll respond to this person's text to me about something. You know what I mean? It's just, again, how today have I engaged in the process of recovery? The disease doesn't take a day off. So my recovery doesn't get a day off. You know, I'm not saying that every day you have to go to a meeting. Though there were times where it was so dark and suicidal for me, you know, that during this trauma memory period that there was a day I went to four meetings because I was afraid to be alone, because I was afraid of the food. You know, I had brand new abstinence. I was like, no. I mean, I was, that's how desperate I was. So, um, let's see. Uh, the definitions of empower, powerless, and helpless. Um, Okay, yeah, I'm going to do this one. So for me, when I had this assignment, um, I had already done the why is it important to take care of me first through an Al-Anon sponsor, and it was so powerful that I bring it into all of my step work now. The first assignment Kimberly gave me was this one, to read the doctor's opinion and then um, write definitions for empower, powerless, and helpless, and then reflect on the meaning and difference in relationship to you. What was really important to me around this, and I did that, Back in the day, you know, you had to get two different, sorry, you had to get two different dictionaries, you know, like books, you know, (laughs) you know, Um, 
And then the great thing was is that Dictionary.com used to uh, do a is it conglomerate or is it a it's where they pull all the definitions to convert to different sources. I went on there recently and it doesn't look like they do that anymore. But the important thing, and it's very valuable, is that you get it from two different sources because you will be actually surprised around the subtle shifting of the word choices. And so one definition might connect with you more than another. But here's the um, sort of, when I did my assignment, here's the image that kind of came up for me, I think very visually. And so everything, you know, is very visual. So I, I imagine at the time I was living in, a, um, it was a basement studio, but because we were on a hill, this was in Bernal Heights in San Francisco, um, we, I wasn't underground. You know, I was just on the side of the hill, and so I could look out and see um, the South Bay. And, but it, to get to my um, front door, my front door was through the garage. And then through the garage was Bernal Hill. And, uh, and so I'm in my studio, and I'm doing this homework assignment, and I was writing these definitions, and I was sort of processing it in my head, and I had this image of, like, the difference between powerless and helpless, right? And so I was like, okay, well, what if – you remember those cartoons where those big, huge cartoon boulders would just roll down? And I thought, okay, what if a big, huge boulder that was huge rolled down Bernal Heights, went through the garage – and blocked my front door, you know, and then I imagined that I didn't have a back door, which I did, but I just imagined, like, and that was my only way out of this room, and I could see myself, like, opening the door and trying, and I got very metaphoric with it, so I, or analogous, whatever, anyway, I, you know, I, where I was just trying to get this boulder out, and I could see myself scrabbling and trying to get, like, crowbars, thinking, because I only see the one side. So let's say I don't know. It's, I just am like something's blocking my door. And so I'm pushing this thing and pushing this thing. And I'm like back. I am fucking trying everything. You know what I mean? And, um, and so I am powerless to move that boulder. But guess what? I have a cell phone. I am not helpless. I am not helpless. So then I imagine picking up the cell phone and calling the city and saying, hey, there's a fucking boulder blocking my door. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, you know, the firemen come and they get me out of the back and then they come. And then I just sort of played with the image. Like, and I was, you know, because I was sort of in this meditative, reflective place and I was playing with this. And, and I could see, like, me standing there with this big, huge, on the outside seeing it. And seeing how, like, what would, what if that really happened? And I could imagine, like, all of the trucks that the city would need to get to be able to even try to move that boulder. Like, how many people it would take. And my heart just kind of broke for me that I thought that I should, that I was supposed to be able to do that all by myself. And that I shamed myself for not being able to do that. That's addiction. Okay? That's the thing about addiction. I've got way too much information on it. But let me tell you that the addiction is that boulder. And we are food addicts. You know, we are process addiction food addicts. That boulder, we cannot do this by ourselves. 
It's not possible. And the reason is, is because we go back to that addiction is replacing emotionally regulating with other people versus emotionally regulating with a thing. And for whatever reason, and I tell my sponsees this, you did not develop an eating disorder because you had nothing better to do. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, you developed or you learned that it was safer to emotionally regulate alone than through other people. Now, here's the thing that I want to say to parents. It's like we are learning so much. My mom and dad didn't have any of this information, you know? And so we're learning it now, which is like now people are learning it. So I, I really do think that even though I hold my parents accountable the way that they should hold their parents accountable, I don't blame them. You know, my mom did not have the choices that I have today as a woman. You know, my mom was like she was going to be a wife or a secretary. Like that's those were her choices. You know, that's not the choices. I grew up with Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels and the Bionic Woman. You know what I mean? Like it was a given. You know what I mean? Like that I was just going to go out in the world and kick ass. I didn't know that society had not caught up with those television shows. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? Whereas my mom grew up watching Donna Reed, you know, and when she was a big deal, like was it Rhoda or something, one of, or Mary Tyler Moore, where she owned her own apartment? That was like, and I remember when she told me that, I was like, what? You know? I was like, that's a big deal, you know? So, um, so again, but the idea being that we, so that's another reason why we have to have the power of the fellowship. Because it's in here that we learn how to use people, which is what we're wired to do, to learn to emotionally regulate. So now I have a feeling, and instead of isolating with it and regulating it, regulating it through work addiction, you know, obsession with a guy, obsession with whatever, over here to, in order to control my feelings, I take it to one of my tribe. And then I process my feelings here, and then I regulate my feelings, and I get back to equanimity. But it's only, but because of my background, you know, I learned like, you know, you know, basically don't trust, don't feel. You know, there's a bunch of, there are like five rules to a dysfunctional family like don't trust, don't feel, don't tell, don't ask. Yeah. There's other, you know, and it's like, so that's where I grew up. And I had to come into 12-step fellowship to learn how to trust connections again. And to practice. And to do it wrong. And to overshare. And to, you know, give advice when I shouldn't. And to try to fix sponsees when that's not my job. You know what I mean? I had to really fuck up. But it's 12-step. It's, you know, it's where we... We're already fucked up. I mean, you know what I mean? We're like, I, I hate to tell you this if you don't already know. But we are on the little yellow bus. You know? What I mean? That's who we are. Like, we could be Goonies too. Do you get what I'm saying? So that's, you know, that's the truth. We're special needs. You know what I mean? But here's the, here's the great thing that I have today that I actually just recently sort of did... I did a theme song, and the theme song, I can't quite remember it, but it was like, 
I was having a great day at work. I got a new job, and I was singing. Because, you know, again, I came from thug life, and now I'm living in the land of gosh and heck. And, uh, and I was, like, at work, you know, and I cover up all my tats, and I'm wearing Ann Taylor, and looking really like, oh, I'm so professional, and I'm 50. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I started singing, like, I'm living in the land of gosh and heck. I'm living in the land of gosh and heck. I'm living in the land of gosh and heck, and I'm passing for normal, and it feels so good. <laughs> Thank you. And what no one knows is it takes 18 professionals to get me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> or it has taken 18 professionals to take me out of bed in the morning. Okay, so we're getting ready to close. Um, so I did most of the talking. I'm a talker. Um, I, what the afternoon session, if there's anything that you guys want to do differently for the afternoon, if you want to break it up, if you want to just give me feedback. I want to give you guys what you want. The problem that I have is I am extremely passionate about this stuff, and I feel that this is my calling, you know, because 12-step really has saved my life. And, and the life that I would have had, and I can look at every single family member and I'm being like, oh, it would have been one of those Versus the life that I have today. And let me tell you, I've had to create some real distance with my family of origin. I love them from afar. And I have to have real boundaries. Because basically, there's the fear team and there's the love team. And the fear team is me and mine and the ego dream. And the love team is the 12 principles and the 12 step. What is best for the team is what's best for me. And I can surrender to that, and I can trust that my needs will get met through taking care of the team. Right? So, you know, I want to give you what you want. I have too much information. So that's why it's like I'm totally happy to keep myself in check and just respond to how you want to do the afternoon. Just don't come up to me right after this. (laughs) So thank you very much.